to perfection. We appreciate that, and that was for the glory of God. I think I probably chipped something last night too, so if I, if I squeak or miss a spot or something, it's all for the glory of God as well. I like that one, Drake. I'm going to use that one. Yeah, that was good. Well, I'm sure if you've been here before, any time recently, you'll know that we are in the book of Revelation, that crazy, symbolic, apocalyptic book that's filled with a lot of uh, truth, but a lot of mysterious truth. And we are in chapter 6 this morning. We looked at chapters 4 and chapter 5, and they were crucial to understanding the rest of the book because it sets a scene, we, we transfer into the heavens, and we are in the throne room of God, and God sits on that throne, and it is from that throne room, from that throne, that all the commands that are executed that we will read about from this time forth, they come from the throne room of God. They are, they are God dispensing His servants to bring about His will. And after looking at God and thinking about God and the sovereignty of God in the throne room, from here on out are basically one series of judgments after another as God executes His commands into the universe. We we will be immersed in one judgment released after another judgment. And we really won't come back up for breath from God's judgment until chapter 19, where God changes the focus from His judgment against His enemies to His care and to the new world for His elect, His children. So, that's that's where we're headed. I have said, and many people say, that basically a good way to describe this book is that all things will be consummated in Jesus Christ. That's what's happening in God's plan. Everything that we see happen as our days unfold, past, present, and future, what's happening is that all things are headed for their consummation in Christ. History, uh, creation, everything will be consummated in Christ. And since that's such an important concept in, uh, in order for us to understand a lot of the judgments in the symbolic a language. I want to just take a few minutes and describe what that means. What does it mean when people say all things? That's, that's where everything is headed. It is headed in to be consumed by Christ. And it means that when that happens, everything will find its perfect fulfillment. That's what we mean. As all things are consummated in Him, they will find their perfect fulfillment in Christ. That's where everything becomes exactly what it was designed to become in the sovereign plan of God. Everything is designed to serve a very specific purpose. And, and we're, we're in that river. We're in that flow now. We haven't arrived yet. But that is what um, is meant by this idea that everything will be consummated in Christ, it's uh, you might look at look at it as everything fully maturing, finding that that ultimate point, and so that will be kind of a final product. We haven't reached it; we're all in progress right now. But that's what we mean when we say all things will be consummated in Christ. But we we don't want to confuse that with the idea that it's the end 
and we, and we reach our peak, and then it, we, it's just stagnant. Because what actually happens is as, as a history and creation are consummated in Christ, they find their fulfillment. That's really the end of this world as we know it, and yet the beginning of the world to come. So it's not a I close the book kind of thing, and it's, it's not one stagnant blessing that just goes on and on and on. It is the beginning of our new life and the new world where we will continue to enjoy God in ways that we just cannot even imagine in this world. So yesterday, we were watching the Littles and uh, Ava and Boone, and they love to play. Kids love to play. They go from one play thing to the next. That's what phase of life they're in. And so Ava was pushing this little toy lawnmower that produces bubbles. And you push it along and it, it just throws out bubbles. And Boone was chasing these bubbles. And so he's having the time of his life and he's, he's going after them with his little giggle. You know, <laughs> and he thinks, he thinks everything is wonderful. And he chased one bubble about this big, about 30 feet over to the dogwood tree. And he finally caught it. And he had a little audience there and we were clapping for him. And Abby was there and she made the comment, don't you wish we could remember all those days? I mean, we had so much fun as kids. We did that stuff. And I was like, yeah. I kind of wish I could remember because he is just having, they're having the time of their lives. But if we could pick one day in our lives, the, the, if we could just remember every wonderful day we had and pick one day in our lives, the absolute best, and wake up every day forever in that great day, now that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. But heaven's not like that. Heaven is like one great day after another. Based on the character and the goodness of God, there's, there's no stagnation of blessing. It, it's like, how can any day top this kind of thinking in heaven? But I believe that's what we're looking for because uh, God and His glory and His, and His goodness and His creativity cannot be exhausted. And we might think, well, how is it possible that we can just go to a place where every day is incredibly better than the next day, like it's even more fulfilling? Well, God can pull it off. If anybody can pull it off, God can pull it off. And he said he's gone to great pains in Holy Scripture to describe how wonderful he is, how majestic, how wise, how powerful, how creative, and he can do it. And so as we think about the consummation of Christ, we are looking at, that's how we are fulfilled in him. And as I think about this, I, I had a thought that I'd never had before as I was thinking about how happy it must be in heaven. I mean, the joy and the delight that his creatures will experience in heaven. And yet, I postulate that we will not be the happiest being in heaven. I think God will be the happiest being in the sense that he is more perfect than we are. He can experience the goodness and the purity of all things, and he's not a created being. He can experience that in all things at a level we won't even know. And as this is his plan and his purpose that will reach its maturation point, I believe that God will be more delighted in all of this than even we will be as his plan is perfected. So in, the, in essence, the consummation means that all things will uh, 
meet their, their greatest purpose, their fullest purpose for why they were even de- designed in the first place. Uh, we won't understand what enough means when we get to heaven. And this is the part, this is the for him part that we read about, not in Revelation, but in the books of the Bible that make more sense, the epistles. In Colossians 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Including the rain. Created through him and for him. So it's not like God created everything and just said, yeah, that was good and just left it. It was created for him to find its purpose in him. And so God delights in watching this unfold and watching our lives unfold according to his plan and his purpose. We were created for him and will will remain in that state of existence for eternity. I want to just to, to bring it around and to bring a little more clarity in how we can think about this and how it's actually a practical way to think on a daily basis. Because we see the same idea again of all places in Matthew 24, verse 14. Let me read that to you. Uh, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world, the whole world, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And that word end is kind of like the word logos. It, it means end, but it means a, can mean a whole lot more. So the word logos means word, but it means a whole lot more than just word. It is the connective. Uh, Jesus is, is the logos, the word he he is what makes everything make sense. He's the connective uh, tissue, if you will, or the brains of everything. It's why we can know anything. It's because the Logos exists and we can reason through this. Well, uh, the word for end is telos. And it doesn't just mean end. It means the supreme stage, the crowning, and the goal of existence. So there's something intended. The end doesn't just come. There's a goal there. It's the crowning of existence. So the idea is that things grow, they, they mature, they, they're taking their shape uh, and plan according to God's plan. Every day, that's what our lives uh, it, um, entail. Is that, that all that we do, all that we think, all that we say, all that we read about, everything, every molecule in the universe is under the control, the sovereign control of God. And it is there's momentum that is going. And all that momentum has to do with the telos and it has to do with the consummation of, consummation of Christ. And an important part of God's plan, Jesus shares with us, is sharing the gospel. It's sharing the good news. It's telling people about this wonderful God in this wonderful place called heaven where we believe that we will reside forever. And so that's why I say it's practical. It's not just something that's reserved for the days to come. This is, this is our plan. This is our vision for life that God has given us. And that is sharing who He is, but also living 
out who he is because that's how the world knows about Christ. It's a very practical thing. And so in this sense, every Christian life, when you look at the big plan and how everything is moving towards the glory of God, that every Christian life, everything we do every day is important to the plan of God. There's a, there's a purpose and there's a design for it. Every Christian life is an important part of God's big plan to move the created universe toward the perfect design so that it will find its consummation in Christ. So you see, it's practical as we think about heaven because we play a part. We're not there yet. We play a part on earth here in, in glorifying the Lord with our witness and with our lives. So I wanted to just take some time to paint that picture because we're about to, to be immersed in a lot of symbolic language, a lot of judgment, a lot of chaos, a lot of destruction, and we're going to tr- have to try to make sense with all of this in the book of Revelation. So let's, um, let's venture in here to chapter 6, the first eight verses. Now I watched... When the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil. And wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. That's the first part of the chapter. That's the first four seals of judgment that will be released. So let me just give you a a quick picture of what's happening here, and then we will dive into it. So we have come to the the famous or perhaps infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. So first we have the military conquer. The first horse comes to conquer. Uh, Second, we have a figure, the horseman that comes to remove the peace that is in the earth. And then the third, the, as a result of the first two, uh, the third leads to social chaos and famine. That's where you bring out the scales and you barter for your food. And then that all leads to fourth, the pale horse and death. That leads to the death of humanity. So we are treated to this vision of horses. So what's the purpose of this? Are, is this a new thing in Scripture? Is, does God use these visions and, and horses or riders on horses um, 
in his plan to help us understand what's going on, we find the same thing in the Old Testament in Zechariah. He says, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. So you see, in this vision, it's very similar. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar in that in symbolic language, God's sending angels into the earth to execute his will. And in this case, in this vision, it was just to check things out, to patrol, to see what's going on. Is there peace in the earth? Again, in chapter 6 of Zechariah, the first five verses, he says, again, I lifted my eyes, I saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot doppled horses. All of them strong. And I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And we'll hear about this concept again as we look at God's judgments, the idea of going out to the four winds of heaven and, and God sending angels to conduct uh, the parts of history. So I quote these Old Testament passages about horses for two reasons. First of all, to just show that God has used these kind of visions symbolically throughout redemptive history. But also to show that when God, especially in the book of Revelation, when there are references made to Old Testament passages and visions, they don't always, actually they very seldom, if ever, perfectly correlate. So you have horses, but they're not the same, always the same color. And like, it's not like, well, whenever God talks about the black horse, the black horse always means the same thing, or the red horse always means the same thing. So Revelation just kind of picks and, kind of picks and chooses scriptures and symbols and then modifies them for their own use. So it would be a mistake to try to carry uh, that meaning of the Old Testament into Revelation. We have to look at the context there. So, you know, in this case, the colors don't line up. The functions of each horse do not line up. In fact, when we look at the white horse, um, we will, you know about Jesus coming back. He returns on a white horse, right? This is not the same white horse. There, so we can't make that conclusion. This guy, this is an angel, and he has to wait for permission to even come. Whereas Christ doesn't wait for permission. He is the ruler of the universe, and he will come, and he will conquer as he sees fit. So um, <clears throat> we have these uh, judgments being released. And it's happening in our world. And Jesus would describe these as birth pangs. Because as we were reminded this morning, the world has fallen that we live in. There's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. But there's also, these pains are leading to something. 
And Jesus refers to it as birth pains of an expectant, expectant woman. Let me just read Matthew 24. And you will hear of, this is verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. Now, that's a pretty crazy statement. When you're hearing about all this destruction, and yet here is Jesus saying, but don't be alarmed by this. Now, why would he say something like that? For this must take place. By the end, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So in Jewish thought, before this is what takes place before the Messiah returns, before the Messiah comes, in Jewish thought. There's going to be a lot of agonizing, a lot of pain, and you know that's what happens in real life with childbirth. It's often not a pretty scene. You know, does a little better these days with helpful drugs or medicines, but it's just it's an agonizing period of a woman's life to give birth. It's not a, a fun thing. And it what a what a perfect metaphor to look at the agony that we see. I mean our world moans and groans in pain and suffering. You can hardly turn the page of the newspaper without reading about it and, and absorbing it and it's tense and it causes us to be anxious and I'm grateful for this message and a reminder from Christ to, who tells his people, don't be alarmed. Actually, this is supposed to be happening. This is, it, yes, it's, it's bad and it's, it's pain and it's suffering and real, just like a woman that gives birth. But this needs to take place. This is actually a good thing because it's the plan of God unfolding as he sees fit. But what makes Revelation often so Difficult is because it describes things not just symbolically, but also um, extremely. And it's very difficult for this reason just to be able to point to a verse or point to a chapter and say, I know exactly what God's talking about. I, I saw this judgment and here's what it was. It's very difficult to do that. Now, there are things that we can look at that happen in this world and we don't really have to pinpoint what scripture is, is transpiring. But we know this is from the hand of God. And we, we, it's pretty obvious there are things that, you know, this could only have come from the hand of God. And we know the difference between good and evil. We know the difference between living in a state of peace and a state of chaos. There are seasons that have transpired ever since Christ ascended into heaven. And this is what he tells about. It's not just in America. We have a tendency to be myopic and think only in terms of what happens in America. This is all over the world because God has a heart for the nations. God is working in every tribe and people of every tongue because that's his heart. And we have a tendency to only think how it impacts us. But all around the globe in all times, God brings forth different degrees of judgments for different purposes and, and different ways, <clears throat> of course, to, to get the attention of the people at that time. So what we're going to look at here in Revelation, it's what we might call uh, interadvental. It takes place between the first advent and the second advent of Christ. And all over different places and <clears throat> to different degrees. Now, in the very end, 
it will come to a culmination. So the judgments that we see and the destruction that we might see in our times, whether it's natural, whether it's wars, will pale in comparison to the final judgment of Christ. And we will be able to, um, though we, we don't know all the details of everything, we will know the difference for sure. I think an accurate way, <clears throat> if I was going to write a book about Revelation, I might entitle it, We Know Enough Without Knowing It All. Because as I read this book and, and study it, more and more, that's what I come away with. It's like, I, I, yeah, I get it, but I don't get it all. I don't know it all. And I don't think we were intended to know every single detail. Now, there are some that want to know every single detail, and they come up with theories, but, and so they would say that they can pinpoint exactly what judgment happened in the world and when and so forth. But what really happens when you, when you go down that route is somebody has a theory and they wind up fitting Scripture into their theory. And Revelation is not a neat book. It's a messy book. And it's not meant to fit into a box. And yet, so it's confusing. And yet, we will understand. We will understand. We understand if you just say the word judgment. We know what that, what that is. Uh, we know what we're experiencing in our lives. We know the difference between a good day and a bad day. We know the difference between a day where we lived for the glory of God and a day where we sinned and disobeyed Him and, and, and we lived under that displeasure and the guilt in our own hearts. We know these things. We can relate to these things. So they're not so alienated or mysterious or symbolic that we cannot make uh, connections in our lives. So if you wanted a spoiler alert, I'm not going to pinpoint specific judgments and tie them to, say, a color of a horse or a horseman. I'm not at that point. But we will know what God intends for us to know, I believe, in this book. So, let's get started. Let's look at this white horse now that we have the big picture in mind. I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So there we go with the thunderous voices again. Heaven is a very, uh, it's, it's a loud, um, intimidating place. And in this time he says, come, but it's not John being beckoned into a vision. This is the angel or the command has gone to the horseman to come. So in other words, they have been on standby in God's plan and now God beckons these horsemen forth to bid His will in the way described. In this case, we have a military or a militant offensive attack on the earth as a form of judgment. That's what the white, he comes with a white horse, he's got weapons, he has a crown, he has come to conquer empires. Hosea chapter 1, 4 and 5 says, And the Lord said to him, And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. That's a, a description of a judgment against God's own people. We have something similar in Jeremiah 51. This would be God's judgment against Babylon, where he says, For a destroyer has come upon her, upon Babylon. Her warriors are taken. 
Their bows are broken in pieces, for the Lord is a God of recompense. He will surely repay. Now, I point that out to see how it works. There are wars that happen in real life. There are battles. There, in that day and age, at least, there were real arrows flying through the air. This was real judgment that people experienced at this level. Blood was spilled. But on the spiritual level, it was God conducting his plan. It was God sending forth his agents to bring his will into place. So you get, you're, you're getting Revelation's view of how things transpire. So when you see something happening on the earth, these are real battles, real judgments, then you know that the command has come from the throne room of God. And that's what's happening with these four horsemen as they're symbolically described. Now then we have the red horse. So what is the judgment of the red horse? He doesn't come to conquer. Actually, he has a different role. And his role is, is not to add, but to remove, to take away the peace of the world. And when you do that, it's a very similar result, and that is chaos, that is destruction, that leads to death. So in very colorful language, God is revealing to us that the world could be even worse if He did not restrain evil. Because now He is sending one of His agents into the earth to remove those restraints that God has put in place. Now that's just as sobering as the rest, is it not? To know that as bad as things are right now, to realize that the sovereign God actually has His hand in situations. And, and if He were to remove that restraint, that, that powerful, sovereign restraint, then things would get even worse. Now we know even in our times, nations are foaming at the mouth to get to each other. There, there's so much going on behind the scenes on a global basis. There's so, there's so much evil and destruction that's being planned that we will never know about. Not because of technology. Technology plays a, you know, espionage and so forth plays a role in that where we curtail things. But over all of that, it's just the hand of God. It's the hand of God restraining things from getting even worse. Now, we'll, we'll never know exactly how that works. We'll, we'll never know, well, you know, was it God that restrained that? Did God just let something loose? It's, you know, again, we, we can't pinpoint ex- exact examples of this but we still have that big idea of yes God's in control it turns out that oh the peace that we thought we were in control of that we had there was something over it so we make our treaties there are restraints in our lives on our level like laws laws keep us from being more evil because we know there's consequences nations have treaties in place uh, there's accountability, there's measures of accountability in place so that we don't act out our evil inclinations all the time. But it's not because we're basically good. It's not because we're so good-souled and all we want is each other's best flourishing. It's just the opposite. When you look at it from heaven's perspective, it's the hand of God and the goodness of God keeping peace among a very wicked evil p 
people bent on doing harm. Now, when you remove that, then you will see a level of chaos that we have not witnessed. And so this happens in these judgments. Again, we, we know enough without knowing it all. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So you see, we have things in place. You know, I, I might, I, I might want to go over to my neighbor's house and punch him in the nose for, for throwing trash on my property, but he's got a big dog, so I'm not going to do it. You know, there's, there's restraints here that take place. And that is from the sovereign hand of God. Even in our rural Nottaway County, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of, there's a lot of dissension that's being, that gets hyped up and groups are being formed. It's, it's a terrible thing to witness the, the, the dissension and the vitriol against people. It just grows and grows and grows. So two horses have been summoned and now we see a third horse. And this is the black horse. So this is all to do with the economy. When peace is removed, society breaks down, we go at each other's throats, it's dog-eat-dog kind of thing, the economy breaks down. And it can get to the point where you're left to barter. Like paper money doesn't mean anything anymore. It's been destroyed, stolen, whatever. And now you just take the real goods that you have of real value, whether it's gold, coins, uh, whether it's vegetables, things that people need. And it's kind of like the uh, apocalyptic movies or end time movies we watch that's describing where you just have to barter and trade to even survive. So you find things that are of worth here. God will send a drought, perhaps a famine, people will suffer. There are societies and people that live you know, paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth, and when any kind of economic collapse happens, then people begin to suffer immediately. Now, this is not a total destruction uh, or starvation because he says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So God, even in this judgment, there's mercy in the sense that it's not total destruction. Now, what armies would do in that day if they really hated you? Not only would they conquer you, but they would go into your land and, and, for lack of better words, bulldoze your vineyards down, your grapevines and everything. So for you to even get a stat reestablished, it would take years and years with little plantings here. And God's not taking this judgment that far. Some will be established there and sustained. But God's people, when in the Old Testament, when they were under judgment, they would have their food supply cut off as well. Ezekiel 4.16 The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. That's an example. This really has already happened where God sends famine as a result of judgment against sin. 
And in this case, it was his own people. And their bodies were wasting away. They were scratching for whatever they could find to survive. And then we have the pale horse. We have the pale horse and the pale rider. Uh, We have death and Hades follows him. This exact verse was actually quoted in a movie. Um, Word for word. And it was the movie... Pale Rider, starring Clint Eastwood. And he, uh, you know, he's got big guns, and he takes justice into his own hands, and he kills a lot of bad guys. And he was the Pale Rider, and death followed him. And if you think that's bad on a Hollywood scale, this is even worse. So because of the wars, because of the conquering, because of nation against nation, because of destruction and famine, and the removal of restraints of goodness, what else could follow but death? And so it's a, it's a mini harvest, if you will, not on the whole world, but just it's limited here. It's a, not a, a full-on judgment. It's just a fourth of the earth, which, of course, that is symbolic. You don't take that literal either. So this is the worst yet. And in, we... Uh, when you see that um, nations in that day, in the Old Testament, when nations were conquered and cities were abandoned, a lot of times the beasts would come in. It was uninhabitable. You could, it was too dangerous to live there. I mean, you had lions. Uh, Daniel was thrown into the den of lions, and Samson ripped open a lion to show the mouth of a lion to show his strength. So there were beasts in that land. But, well, in our day, that doesn't really happen so much. It does in the movies, but it doesn't happen. But... In our day, we are sent a variety of things. We know about wars and rumor of wars. We know about all of the natural um, tragedies and disasters, uh, the weather patterns that are taking place. There's just destruction nearly every day. And now because we, ha- we can know about global news at any given time, we can get all the bad news at our fingertips all around the world Anytime we want. Of course, it works both ways. If they would report the good news, we could have that as well. So they had these things. You know, in our day, what do we... We still have the disease. Disease was sent. We have disease. It's not so long ago there was the AIDS epidemic. And, and even um, just very recently, the, the COVID virus. There are things that, that happen for God's reasons. And they... Really, the message is you're not in control. And they stopped whole societies in their tracks. I mean, almost the world was stopped dead in its tracks with, with the virus of COVID. I mean, what, what can we walk away? Whether it's, uh, there's not all judgment or not all disaster is a matter of judgment of sin. You know, God does things simply for his glory, like the person that was born blind. It wasn't his parents and it wasn't his. It wasn't judgment of sin. It's just for the glory of God. That happens too. But in, when we see these kind of judgments, it is a reminder that we're just a vulnerable people. You know, we go and, and we plow through life. You know, we're Americans and we plow through life and nothing's going to stop us. And then you get this virus and we're just shut down. I mean, who's really in control? God is in control and he can remove health and he can bring famine. He can bring disease. Uh, there, there are times that we are just absolutely humbled and the purpose, of course, is to wake us up to realize that 
that there is such a thing as a judgment and we are accountable to the God of the universe. And we are not in control of our own lives as we would like to think. And that God has an even better plan, that God is a better manager of our lives than even we are. So in conclusion, we, I guess you could say we are still in the birth pangs stage between the advents. We're going to see these things. We will continue to see these things. We'll see them on small scale. We'll see them on a larger scale. But in the meantime, what do we do? We love God. We witness for the Lord. We tell people about the truth and we live it. We want our neighbors to be able to see how the realities of the kingdom of God as they are displayed in our lives, displayed in how we worship Him, how we go to, into the workplace and the marketplace, how we drive down the road, how we interact with people. All of that is the kingdom momentum and God is using us as His servants to bring to pass His great plan. So we want to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our mind and thank Him and be grateful for this vision of, that we have today and the vision that He has given us for eternity and what comes next. May God bless the preaching of His Word.